Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss Jones Bowden he's got it England have won the World Cup by the barest of margins Stokes flashes it away through the covers for four and England have won the match Hello, welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket with me, Simon Hughes. And me, Simon Mann. A pause, of course, in the England-India Test Series at the moment. This time next week, we're recording this on Friday afternoon, they'll be in the second day of the match in Dharamshala. Lots of talk, Simon, about the uh, opportunities for English cricketers to go abroad and you know, sun themselves in hot climes. Not quite what they're going to get in Dharamshala, is it? Well, I've been having a look at the weather forecast uh, for next week. First day of the game, top temperature, a sizzling 12 degrees on the Thursday in Durham, Charlotte. Some rain around as well, a low of five degrees. Then picking up a bit, it looks like. The Friday, goodness me, it's going to be sweltering. It's going to be 14 degrees and then 16 and then 18 degrees. Well, when we went there in January, it was around about 20 degrees during the day, wasn't it? It was really lovely and pleasant and sunny. Nighttime, it was really cold. But it looks as though it's going to be much cooler, even though we're in early March. It looks as though it's going to be much, much cooler. You know, a bit like a, a test match in, in Durham, uh, dare I say. <laughs> I, I have to say, Yoz, I think I've been the hottest I've ever been at a test match ground in Durham and the coldest. Because we were there for that South Africa match, or I was there for the South Africa one day uh, on that absolutely steaming hot day in the UK when temperatures got to about 42 degrees. And then I can remember a West Indies test match there where I, I was doing the opening of the programme on Test Match Special and I was literally shivering on, <laughs> on the boundary edge. So that's what it's going to be like a little bit in Darren Shala uh, next week. I feel it might nip around a bit, wouldn't you? I don't know. I don't, yeah. well, not sure you, I, what... Joe Root brought his long sleeve out. He had it on in the last test, didn't yeah. he? So he'd obviously, obviously looked at the, the long-range forecast. Actually, I think the hottest I've ever been on a cricket ground was in the World Cup, in this last World Cup that match England-South Africa in Mumbai. Mm. I mean, I just remember walking out in the middle before the toss at about 1.30, 1 o'clock. Oh, my God. You know, you mm. couldn't breathe. It was, like being, it was like being in an oven. 
And because of the sort of things like the pollution and everything, as well as the heat and the humidity, it was so stifling. It was that, that is the hottest I've ever been. Yeah, you're, some, you're right. Some of the coldest is certainly Dharamshala. I remember going to bed in Dharamshala uh, at night, you know, during that one day series. And, you know, it was they didn't have heaters in the hotel rooms. And they, for some bizarre reason, they left the front door open as well. So that was pretty cold. Actually, it's funny. India can catch you out, can't it? Because I remember being uh, I actually covered the 93 tour uh, in in India when uh, Graham Gooch, it was Graham Gooch's team. Mike Atherton was on that tour. And I was actually mainly going to attend a wedding. My friend was getting married in Mangalore down in the south. And I was going to attend the wedding and I was sort of popping into the test series on the way. And the test match was in Calcutta. And I had to get from Mangalore to Calcutta via Delhi. I can't remember why I went via Delhi, but I was ended up in Delhi. And it was in January. And all I had was T-shirts and shorts and sort of one wedding outfit. And that's all I had because I sort of wasn't expecting it to be to be cold. And I literally had to put every single piece of clothing I was on a train going to, to Delhi or somewhere near or Agra or somewhere, and I, I had to put every piece of clothing on in my bag because it was about two degrees in Delhi and the windows in the train were all broken. So the, you know, there's these gusts of Arctic wind coming in through, the, through the, the, the carriage. I was so cold. And you know, I had, I had my wedding outfit on, you know, the, as well as all my T-shirts and shorts and pairs of socks and everything, and I was still cold. So it can catch you out, India, can't it? And the lesson, folks, is do your planning, yours. Have a look at the <laughs> average temperatures well, in various anyway, places we, in the world. Yes, I suppose that's right. So planning this uh, particular podcast, we, we've we had lots of very interesting replies uh, after the interview with Paul Hawkins that we did the other day about Hawkeye and about umpire's call. So we're going to get into that. Uh, also, later in the podcast, we've got an interview with Manoj Badali, the owner of the Rajasthan Royals. He's been on our podcast before but of course he's the one english-based owner of an ipl team and he's had uh, or his his franchise has had some interesting influence on the test series because t- players from both sides jaiswell jarell bashir ollie pope and others have starred who were or are rajasthan royals or have been part of the franchise or the academy so he's got some interesting things to say about that and whether uh, one of his franchises, whether his franchise is going to buy a team in the the hundred and other topics. Uh, so we'll come to that after the break. There is, of course, other Test cricket going on at the moment, including a, a meteoric day for Ireland, Simon. Well, that's finished. Yeah, that's all over. They've won that Test match in the UAE. They've beaten Afghanistan by six wickets. Got seemed to get a bit nervous on what proved to be the final day. They lost some early wickets in pursuit of just over a, a hundred to win. But yeah, they've done, they've finally done it, Ireland. A test match victory. It'll be very sweet uh, for them to take down Afghanistan. Another game going on in Wellington as well. I was watching some of that last night on TNT Sports and that mammoth last wicket partnership between Green and Hazelwood. The two sort of, you know, in a way, giant quick bowlers uh, for Australia. But Green, obviously, a decent uh, batter as well. And Hazelwood helping him sort of to a wonderful last wicket stand of over 100. It's, it's, it's the theme, isn't it? It, it went, probably when you played, it was a bit 9-10 jack. Well, certainly when you were batting, anyway, it was a bit 9-10 jack, <laughs> wasn't it? But everyone's expected to bat these days, and everyone just about 
sells their wickets dearly. And so you do get these big stands. We saw it in the last test match, eighth wicket stand between Robinson and Root of over 100. And then India doing something similar with their eighth wicket stand. And then Australia with that 10th wicket stand. Okay, still three days available in the game, but it looks as if Australia have got that test match to take down the World Test Championship uh, leaders, New Zealand uh, played only four games so far, won three and, and lost one. Mm. And it also leads me to that thought, you know, that if England want to qualify for the World Test Championship final, you know, they're going to have to overcome two really good sides in Australia and India uh, to get there. But it's I mean, but it's it's slightly skewed by how many games you played. And of course, England have played India and Australia now, or will have done by the time they finish the series next week. And then England get to play six home test matches, which and they'll inevitably look to cash in as much as they possibly can. So it's not about total points. Remember, it's about percentage compared to your number of matches uh, played. Yeah, and um, actually, it's amazing to think that New Zealand have not beaten Australia at home with New Zealand being at home since 1986 in a test series. I suppose that must have been the Martin Crowe, Richard Hadley era. And uh, it just shows that you know, Australia are always hard to beat and New Zealand haven't done it for you know, getting on for nearly 40 years. Amazing, really. And it doesn't look, uh, they're not in a great shape uh, for this test match either. It's only a, a two test series, so not looking all that good for New Zealand. Although just over a year ago against England in Wellington, New Zealand overturned a near impossible position, didn't they, to win that test match. They actually followed on and won the game by one run. Uh, I'm not sure Australia are going to let them off the hook like uh, England did. And you know, Australia also you know, able to bat a, a second time and build up a huge lead, as England should have done in that Wellington test match a year ago, and say, go on, go on, chase 450, chase 500 then and see if you can beat us. I don't think they would have done, but England gave them the opportunity by uh, enforcing the follow-on. There we go. Yeah. So I haven't noticed any controversial decisions in either of those test matches, uh, but obviously there were quite a few that caused a bit of comment during the India-England series so far, the four tests that have elapsed so far. Uh, a lot of umpires called. So uh, having interviewed Paul Hawkins, the founder of Hawkeye, on our last podcast, which you can go back and listen to, uh, one of the things I sort of posted on Twitter was, should we get rid of umpire's call? Because, uh, you know, in a way, Paul Hawkins, I thought, actually revealed something quite uh, interesting in that he said umpire's call isn't there to protect the likelihood of inaccuracy of the projection at all. It's not there. Their uh, accuracy levels are much higher than the umpire's call area. So, in other words, pretty much 100%. So it's more there, just as a, originally umpire's call was introduced to sell the idea of DRS to the umpires, and that is still largely the case, even though they are now all bought into it. Umpire's call isn't really there for any other reason, except, as Paul uh, argues, and you also argue, uh, to kind of maintain the fabric of the game and make it not just a, an automated contest, but that actually there are human decision-makers out there and it's important to keep that human element. So we've had quite a lot of interesting reaction. Uh, overall, uh, I asked people to answer the poll, should we abolish umpire's call? 27.5% of you said yes, 64.4% said no, and 8.8% said we don't know. And that was out of about 1,000 replies. So 27% yes, 64% a resounding no. Hmm. What do you well, think? I think 
well, I think I would be on the side of those people saying no. But like we said in the in the last episode, if if you people want to experiment with a I don't know, a couple of years of umpire's call being taken away and see what impact that has on the game. I think my my point was uh, during that last test match is that you know there were fine fine margins in cricket all the time. There were some fine calls in terms of fine margins in that last game. It's just one of those things. It's what happens and it's it's a process that's worked so well uh, for so long. It's been refined over the years. There's no need to really change it other than you know, Ben Stokes saying we should get rid of it because, of the, I, you know, basic, I suppose, it's because there are situations where the ball hits the stumps after the projection and the batter survives. You think, well, hold on a second, you know, he he's still in and yet he was out, if you saw him. That's, what, that's I think, Ben Stokes' logic. And you can sort of understand that, can't you? If, if, if the system is that accurate, then if the ball was going to knock the bales off, then... He should be out. That's the that's the logic, I think, and I can see that. I think there's, you know, there is a, some merit in that, but I think it probably needs a bit of experimentation to see whether that's what we want to do in the game. But it's a point you've made so many times, I think, over the years that actually what it would do effectively would sort of increase the the size of the stumps. Anyway, you you've had some well contact with lots of people who got yeah, in touch with you, well, including yeah, the, Michael Holding. That's right. I mean, lots of replies. And by the way, if you want to comment on this, I mean, there's a few ways of getting hold of us. You can email us at the analyst podcast at gmail.com, the analyst podcast at gmail.com. Uh, it seems a more favoured way of communicating with us is on Twitter. Uh, now known as X, uh, at The Analyst. So Michael Holding actually WhatsApped me because he's uh, someone who's very kind of active on commenting on all sorts of things, actually, uh, hiding away in the Grand Cayman area in in the Caribbean. Uh, anyway, he uh, responded to my uh, comment. In fact, I sent him part of the video that I recorded with Paul Hawkins and I said to him, well, OK, what do you think? Because he was on the original ICC committee that originally approved the DRS system a long time back. And so I said, well, you know, do you agree with it now? Should umpire's call be abolished? And he says that depends on whether we're trying to get to perfection or whether we're still willing to put up with human frailties. Remember why the DRS was brought into the game in the first instance to get rid of the howlers and not to get every decision right. Has that objective changed? If it has, then get rid of umpire's call, and whether the technology is perfect or not, it won't matter. Hmm. Well, that's a very logical response, isn't it? I, I, I think very quickly, though, what happened with DRS is that it moved away from this idea of the howler, and players just out in the middle said, we just want the decision out or not out, right or wrong. So if there was a, you know, a small doubt that that something was not out, then they wanted it not out. You know, it wasn't. It wasn't for them it, in their minds. It it wasn't about the howler, and I think that's how the system has changed. Yeah, it, it, the idea is it would get rid of terrible decisions, you know, a massive inside edge onto the pad. But players are also thinking, oh, you know, hold on a second. If we can persuade the umpire to raise the finger and it's just clipping the top of leg stump, we've got that decision. Whereas in the past, umpires would have said, no, but in favour of the batter, not out, on with the game. But there's there's that sort of in-between element that has come in and it's been in there for a, a long time. And that's what I think that's also what football is grappling with as well, is those sort of fine margin ones where, you, you know, you, in the in that you know they're not howlers you know uh they're things we or can we get that in our favor i i'm thinking particularly i suppose of offsides you know those real t- 
really sort of tight margin. You know, he's a he's an eyelash offside or something like that. Um, it's it's that, and if you can get that to go in your favour as a defensive side, oh yeah, his eyelash was offside. Then <laughs> fantastic, uh, and and that's how I think players see the decision review system now. Is it out or is it not out in a sort of totally objective? ruthless way and I suppose that's what Ben Stokes was saying that the logical and that's what Michael was saying as well the sort of logical extension of that is that well if it's hitting the stumps then you know surely that is out and so the, the, undoubtedly the technology has improved as, as Michael Holding mentioned I'm just thinking back actually to the sort of early days of Snickometer and before Ultra Edge came in the Snickometer was the first was a version of that and sometimes the little kink on the on the graph the little spike on the graph wasn't very big. And so you didn't really know whether that was the bat or not. And if we thought it was the bat, then the operator sort of made the spike a bit bigger to make it look as if it was an edge. And we probably thought it was an edge. Uh, and if oh. it wasn't, you know, and, and if it wasn't... Might it not have been an edge? It might not have been an edge. So they sort of left the spike lower down, you know, smaller. And the guy was given not out. But that was in the days before DRS, really. Before DRS came in, that was in the days when we just put the, the spike up on the screen and for people to see what our technology had picked up. In time, that technology has improved. The sensitivity of both the cameras and particularly the microphones has improved. So uh, maybe, you know, it, it is much more foolproof now. I mean, going back to the idea that all balls that are being hit are hitting the stumps should therefore be out... Here's a, a, a good comment from Charlie Gunningham. And I'm por- I apologize I pronounced his name wrong. I called, I called him Cunningham the last time he, uh, we read out his email. But anyway, he says, he's, he says, love your podcast. I've been listening to six, for six years, which is impressive. Never miss an episode. I live in Perth, Western Australia. Anyway, umpire's call. I'm sure Hawkeye is accurate, as Paul Hawkins argues. The howler has been eradicated, thank goodness. However... We've seen many balls actually hit the stumps and even the bales, and yet the bales have not fallen. A recent example in the Australia West Indies series saw the ball actually clip the bale, which then rotated 360 degrees in the groove, but did not fall. So we never know what might have happened if the ball had not hit the pads. Maybe the bale would not have fallen. So he suggests, as a result of that, he suggests, let's recalibrate Hawkeye, as so that if more than 75% of the ball would have hit the stumps, it's out. If less than 25%, it's not out. Hmm. So is that, that's a different type of umpire's call, is it there? Is that, is that what he's yeah, saying, I, I basically? So, yeah. so if it's just clipping, it's not out, basically. Well, he says the umpire has no say. Glancing blows are not good enough to give someone out, no matter what the umpire thinks. Hmm. Well, we have, yeah, we have seen instances, you're right, where the ball has just clipped the outside of the stumps and the bell's not fallen. I remember there's one in the IPL, and we'll talk a little bit about that later when we get on to Manoj, where the ball actually clipped the stumps. The stump lit up, didn't it? Because they had those, those stumps that light up in the IPL, the bells that light up, and then went for four. It went, you know, it went <laughs> to the boundary. So, you know, it really rubs it in for the bowler. The bale did not fall off, and the bale, you know, has to come out of its groove, doesn't it, for a, a batter... Uh, to be out. I like this response from Richard uh, Robinson about, you know, should we get rid of umpire's call? He says, no, 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 in capital letters. It's one of the best aspects of teching cricket. 
It puts importance on umpires and also some tactics and jeopardy on the review system. It adds to the game. And actually, I, I mean, I, I, in a way, I quite like that sort of the jeopardy around whether you go for a, re, you know, you go for a review. I mean, you talk about the howler. It doesn't always get rid of the howler, of course, because Ollie Robinson was out plum LBW in the last test match, but because India had burnt all their reviews off earlier, they didn't have a review left. Because Australia didn't have a review left at Headingley, they didn't get the one against Ben Stokes. Although, you know, we can debate, we'll probably debate that forever. I have to say that one didn't look like a howler, but the Robinson one, actually, it did look like a bit of a howler. I thought, how on earth has he not given that LBW the umpire? Unless he thought it it clipped the outside edge of the back because the ball went through to the keeper and was then dropped. So... You know, I suppose it gets rid of most howlers, doesn't it? That's that's the point. Mm. Uh, and if you've got reviews left, you know that if you've, you've heard an inside edge onto the pad and it goes out to short leg and the catch is taken, the umpire gives it not out, you go, right, well, we've got the review. And actually, there was one, wasn't there? On the last day of the England-India match, there was a short leg catch. I think it was Safraz, wasn't it? It was given not out. Technology showed inside edge onto the pad. So, yeah, that does get rid of that. Howler. And of course, there are two different types of decision. There's there's the decision of fact, which that was, mm. inside edge. And then there's the decision of prediction, which is what LBW is. And it's what your uh, emailer from Australia is saying there, that although you although you think the ball's going onto the stumps, it, it may not knock that damn bail off. And then there's also uh, Martin, who goes by the name on Twitter, Dills41, says, how can you be accurate on the predictive element? One ball swings after it passes the bat, the next doesn't. Umpire's call works perfectly to provide fairness, not accuracy. Well, I would just say that with the ball swinging after it passes the bat, there is so little distance to go, usually when a batsman is hit on the pad, round about a yard or two, a metre or two at the most, that the, the likelihood of the ball swinging more in that space, in that distance, that metre and a half, than it has in the previous 19. You know, they've already plotted what the path of the ball is for the first 19 yards, and it's not going to suddenly change, dramatically change direction in that last yard. You know, already the projection of the direction of the ball, if it's swinging, has already been accounted for. So I don't think that really is particularly a, a valid um, kind of criticism of, of, of Hawkeye. And it, Ash Cowdery... He says, should umpire's call be abolished? No, it's the reason why DRS works 90% of the time and VAR doesn't. On-pitch decision should count for a lot because technology is still only a prediction. Umpire's call recognises this. For example, would DRS account for a sudden gust of wind across the pitch? (laughs) Well, I don't know about that. Willie, who goes at at Evenflow76, says, succinctly, the use of tech... In cricket is infinitely better than VAR in football. Leave it alone. And I think that's, that's probably true. I think I said this before, that the protocols work well in cricket. They're well thought out. And I think they've st- largely stood uh, the test of time as well. That, that That's the point. Whereas football is still grappling with it. It's still trying to find its, its protocols. And of course, it's a very different game. So many moving parts to football. There are fewer moving parts to cricket. It's far more stop-start. So it lends itself, in a way, it does lend itself to stopping the game to have a look at something because the game stops quite naturally. It was football. You want it to flow, don't you? And those three or four minute breaks they get while they're just looking at the the, the tiniest thing in football really does uh, hinder its flow. I thought there was a good point made by uh, Akash Chopra, former Indian player on Twitter on, on this whole debate. And, and he said, um, 
and it's a point that Paul Hawkins made about how the their staff go out every day to calibrate the stumps and sort of just check on that you know they has got that sort of perfect uh, rectangle and he Akash says he says that they measure or calibrate the width of the stumps every morning before the start of a day's play but they don't do it every time the stumps are broken during the play wouldn't that lead to discrepancies after all the mat is also a virtual representation of the width it's, it's quite a good point actually isn't it you know are the do the stumps go back in exactly the right place you know when they're sent cartwheeling out of the ground yards by one of your 90 mile an hour yorkers you know they're splattered everywhere when they put them back in again are they in the exactly <laughs> same place as they set them up for for hawkeye you know it's, in it's the funny, morning when you play in club cricket don't you or village cricket or whatever some of those stump holes get very worn don't they and sort of they, they become very large and it's quite hard to get the stump to stand up. Do you remember when you've been in the nets and the, we, before the days of sort of spring-loaded stumps, we had to stick the stumps in. Every time you got bowled, you had to put the stump back in again and the hole just got wider and wider. So in the end, you couldn't get the stump to stay upright at all. You had to sort of lean a shoe against it or something to, to keep the stump upright. I mean, it is a valid point, that, but I suppose in a way... You can't ever get, in the same way as you're saying, you know, is an is an eyelash offside. You're never going to get perfect calibration because there, there, there is all these variances. And you know, like Paul Hawkins said, if it's at Lords, the, the the pitch is on a slope. So, are but the they, they they take right? that into account, don't they? Well, they, they do, take, yes, the, the, yeah. yeah. But but they in take a way, that into account. but sometimes the graphic hmm. is showing that the stumps are directly vertical, but hmm. actually on the pitch. The stumps are in line, are vertical in relation to the slope of the pitch rather than perfectly upright, um, as in sort of totally flat. So, you know, there are all these kind of slight imperfections and mm. it, 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 you can't quite get that sort of perfect scenario, I suppose. Mm. Here's one uh, from Outside Edge at Bintu123456.7 on Twitter and th this actually is, is more about like good luck with what you wish for I think um, because he says when you play in the subcontinent with turn and variable bounce against bowlers like Ashwin and Judeja who bowl literally every ball on the stumps well not literally every ball but I know I sort of know what he means no visiting side has any chance of survival <laughs> with if it's hitting it's hitting so you know basically I think what he's saying is he said I don't think Stokes and he says and Vaughan realised this fact although I think Michael's point was a completely different one Ben Stokes was talking about umpires called getting rid of ben, uh, michael vaughan was talking about actually putting cameras in the in the drs box actually i mean just to make sure that there's sort of transparency uh, that that was his point anyway uh, okay the point from uh bintu is yeah these games will be over in two days if you if you, have, if you gave everything out uh, I, I don't know and that's why i say if you're going to change it and I don't see necessarily why there's a point in changing it. If you are going to change it, though, I think there needs to be some sort of trial period in some form of cricket or other. Do you, do you, would you just want to bring it in straight away in Test cricket? I don't know. Perhaps you might do it in T20. You might do it in, in certain one-day internationals to have a look at it. But it does come back to the point, do you need to change it anyway? Has it worked? Does it work? The, does it stood the test of time? And I think it has. Yeah, uh, I think it's. I think it's fine. I just think it needs to be a bit clearer, you know. And a few mm. people have said. In fact, my friend Colin Cook, uh, who was a former Middlesex player, who now also lives in Australia, he is often uh, emailing about this kind of stuff. And he says, you know, on the graphic, if it's fifty-one percent hitting, put that on the graphic. Show yeah. us, you know, yeah. rather than it looking a bit kind of vague. Let's have the numbers. And of course, Paul Hawkins says in tennis. When it's a naught percent, 
whether the ball was out or not, whether it's naught millimeter, if it's naught millimeters, they make it one millimeter mm. to show which way it's been the computer has decided. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think Paul understood that himself, didn't he? Mm. Paul made that point in the end that he didn't want Hawkeye to be part of the story. But if they are, they need to think about how they can represent what they are doing better on screen. Because that's where everyone is seeing it. They're seeing it on the screen. So if there are improvements to be made in it, it's the presentation uh, to the public. And that might be one way of just explaining it uh, more clearly, that you know, 51 49 or whatever it is even or 50 point not 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 one or something like that i don't know i mean i'm I'm, yeah exaggerating a couple more here um vedant pratap singh jadon who goes by vps jaden uh he says i think that that umpire's call should be replaced by benefit of the doubt or bod bod historically bod has always gone in favor of the batsman so we can continue it here. It would be slightly unfair to the bowlers in some edgy cases, but the decisions would be consistent. Well, I have to kind of counter that by saying there is no such thing in cricket, in the laws of cricket anyway, as the benefit of the doubt. Uh, That is a complete myth. There is no mention in the laws of cricket of the batsman should get the benefit of the doubt. Nothing about it. So I'm afraid that is the completely wrong suggestion Benefit of the doubt should not belong to the batsman or the bowlers. There is no such thing. Well, and finally, back, sorry, go on. That comes back to my point about players wanting either out or not out, isn't it? There, there, there are no grey areas. It's out or not out. And, and finally, one here from Lee Widdit, who says, fundamentally, cricket is a game umpired on the field. DRS should only be an aid or assistant to that. Otherwise, cricket at professional level becomes a totally different game to what everyone else is playing. I mean, he's suggesting there that uh, you need to have the, the similarities at all levels of the game. But, of course, the game isn't, a, it isn't the same wherever you play, is it? It's totally different. Well, we have DRS in, in international cricket and in, in, in some you know, franchise leagues and, and other forms of professional cricket as well. We don't have that in club cricket, even though there are many times, I think, during the times I was playing club cricket, you what I'd you, like to you have. You wish you did have. I mean, yeah. I suppose he, he's... Some people might say is there's more at stake in professional cricket, so you've got to get everything right. But that doesn't uh, necessarily help the people who feel hard done by in a club match, does it? No, it doesn't. I, as I say, I can still remember a decision I got in 25 years ago on a, in a Sunday friendly match up in Watford where the ball definitely clipped my hip and the umpire gave it out, caught behind. And I, well, I stood there for a bit and I was told to get going. You clearly hit that. Well, I, I can tell you to this day, Yoz, I can, I can swear on your bald head that I did not hit that ball. It flicked my hip. You know, you most of the time, you know, when you're out. Um, you, you sad bastard. I mean, I, I, I actually, <laughs> uh, I had one um, in a school game where uh, I noticed uh, before the bowler bowled that three people were behind the wicket on the leg side. And so oh, I went canny. down the wicket. Uh, mm. So I went down the wicket to the next ball. I had a big slog, thinking, well, I'll be all right because it'll be a no ball. And I missed it, and I was bowled, right? So, the, you know, the opposition school team mm. all cheered away, hooray, we got him out. And I stared at the umpire and pointed. And I said, look, there's three men behind the wicket on the leg side. That's mm. a no ball. Mm. And the umpire, who was the uh, opposition school you know, coach, just stared at me and went, get off your snivelling little prick, you're out. <laughs> And I had no DRS to manage to save me on that occasion. Well, that, well that, is, that is something completely different. That is about 
well, two things, actually. One, umpires liking you. It's always best to make the umpire your friend. And B, umpires actually knowing the laws. Unfortunately, at the level we're talking about, uh, they do. Uh, but not, not at your level. Bad luck, yours. He didn't call you that, did he? He did. <laughs> How old were you? under his breath. Do you think I could How sue him? I could sue him. About 13 or 14 or something? No, I think he'd go for fair comment. I don't think he could sue him. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Right then, Yoz, let's move on to Manoj Badali. People have had their say about uh, DRS. I don't think they are going to change the protocols, but we'll see. See what happens as time goes on. You know, sometimes there can be lobbying uh, behind the scenes, but that doesn't seem to be like a, an overall sort of general call for it from you know players, officials, uh, that sort of thing. But, okay, Yoz, you've been talking to uh, Manoj Badali. What has he been talking about? So... You know, I, I approached him really because, I mean, he's a mate and we, we talk about the game a lot. And uh, I've been, I've sort of worked behind the scenes a bit with the Rajasthan Rules as well. So I kind of know how they operate. And I, I wanted to talk to him a little bit, actually, uh, about the, the work that the franchises do behind the scenes as much as anything. Because they have this sort of uh, public face of, you know, creaming off the top, making loads of money and destabilising the world game. But actually, they do a lot of good work uh, as well as, as 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 being running a very successful business. So I, I asked him whether he's going to invest in the English game, uh, looking behind the scenes at some of the academy work that they do and the names, the, some of the star names that have emerged from those academies, including people playing in this India-England series. And that's where we started, uh, I asking him, about the sort of satisfaction he must get from seeing young players they picked out of almost obscurity at times suddenly starring for India and England. Yeah, look, look it's hugely exciting, whether it's um, Drew Jarrell that, as you say, hadn't played first-class cricket um, before he came to the Royals. Uh, and, that, you know, so it, it's brilliant to see someone that uh, has worked so hard um, at our academy in Nagpur sort of leapfrog many others straight into the Indian test side, but not just do it, but also, you know, I thought he looked completely at ease and, um, you know, looked like he'd been there for years. It's great to see that, but, but on the England side, you know, you've got, you know, Ollie Pope and Shoaib Bashir, who've both uh, spent time at the Royals Academy um, down in Cobham. Um, so, so, yeah, of course it's great, but, um, you know, you've got to enjoy those, those moments, haven't you? Uh, Jeffrey Boycott actually uh, sent me a, an email saying he was very impressed with Drew, Drew Jurel and 
uh, to pass that on to you, actually. Uh, very fine. Yeah, I, 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 uh, I hope he pronounces his name better than you do. Um, oh, but, I, I hope he does too. <laughs> but, uh, the, but, but again, it was uh, actually the, you're, you always learn something new when you, uh, when you see players in different contexts. But, but actually, I don't think any, any of us realised quite how eff- effective he is behind the stumps. I mean, we knew he could wicket keep, but you know, wicket kept fantastically in diff- really difficult conditions. So obviously the, the IPL is the big kind of uh, front and centre image of a franchise. But tell us a bit about what goes on behind the scenes because we've seen players emerging in this uh, India-England series, for instance, the, the likes of Jai as well, the likes of Bashir, who have been working in Rajasthan Royals academies around the place. So, you know, what, what, what goes on behind the scenes? I've heard a, a message this week from Zubin your director of cricket saying that uh, Jarrell actually spent four hours practicing the day or two before the test match at the high performance center, Royals high performance center. So there's a lot kind of of infrastructure there that which people don't see is, do you think that is in a way how you put back into the game? Uh, Yeah, look, uh, I wouldn't want to overstate our impact on different players. I mean, I think in India we are, able to work with players year-round. Uh, the centre we've got in Nagpur is something we've invested in for many, many years. Uh, it's very well located and it's easy easy for, for players all over India to get to. And so for players like Jarrell, players like, you know, Rahane, Samson, um, you know, it's been a, it's been a really important part of, of their development. Uh, I think what we've tried to do with the academies overseas, uh, as you correctly say, is sort of put back into cricket a little bit. And I think, you know, our academies overseas are very much supplementary places for young players to go um, in addition to the county infrastructure that they might be a part of or a club infrastructure that they might be a part of. Um, It's not just a sort of altruistic, let's put something back into the game. I mean, there is a, you know, I remember when Zubin, who's who's just to to get his title right, sort of director of our sort of high performance uh, activity, um, I remember Zubin has talked for years about the need for us to look at how we teach cricket and to change the way we teach cricket. And the reality is, you know, when you and I were growing up, there was a way of teaching cricket which fundamentally hasn't really changed, right? You know, two old blokes at the back of a net um, standing behind the bowler stumps, you know, commenting on shots and telling players to get the foot to the pitch of the ball. Whereas, you know, when you look at how the game is played now, um, it's completely different, uh, whether it's bowling, batting or fielding. And therefore, um, the drills, the coaching, the way we teach has to change. And I don't think, I don't think that has moved quickly enough. So, so now the motivation for us has been, uh, as you know, because you've, you've contributed to it, but to create a different way of teaching young players how to play the game to make it more exciting, to make it more inclusive, but also to really focus on the skills that you need to play the short form of the game, which are different to the skills you need to play all formats. But I sort of feel that, you know, you partly uh, accepted that, but I feel that what the Royals are doing in these academies and high-performance centres is sort of in a way overcoming the disconnect between a county or a state pathway and the requirements at international level because of the fact that coaching is a bit stereotyped. It feels like you're 
you're the polish in a way, polishing the raw diamond in these academies. I, I feel that's, and you know, if you'd listen to someone like Bashir talking about his experience at the Raw's Academy at Reeds, um, that he, that was his experience. I mean, he met Shane Warne there and he was mm. able to interact with someone. Well, you don't get that, do you? On a county pathway, you don't get access to those big star names who can have a, a, a lifetime influence on you. Yeah, I mean, look, there's a lot in there, but it's, it's not for me to comment on, you know, what's happening outside of the Royals, but it's, you know, our focus on young talent development has served us incredibly well over the last 15 to 16 years. So we just get ever more committed to it. Our development of the international academies, of which we now have seven, and, you know, our ambition is to have, you know, closer to 50 around the world, is a great way of spreading the brand, engaging new players, and as you say, getting, giving those players a chance to meet superstars. And, and, and it also, it's an important part of our culture, I think, as a franchise, where we expect the players to want to participate in the academies. And, and you know, I remember the times that, you know, Warner used to go down to Cobham. You know, he, he, was never, he was never told to go to Cobham. It was something he wanted to do. Now, he might have done it on the way to a golf game or something. But, um, you know, I, th- I think, I think the best players all recognise that they too have a responsibility to put back. Actually, it links to your other passion, in a way, Liverpool, because (laughs) I was reading something the other day, uh, Jamie Carragher writing about the Liverpool Academy and how when they select young players, they look for character almost more than they look for talent. You know, it's it's how they behave. It's things like Jurgen Klopp looks at what watches a young player wears or what car he drives. And apparently you're not allowed to drive anything more than a 1.3 litre car if you're a young academy player. He doesn't want them getting too much too soon. And I guess I I sort of sense also with your uh, selections of, of players, both in the draft and for the academy, that you have a look at character as a very important aspect of them. I think, look, I think you've got to. I've, I, I know the piece you're referring to, and I've not, I've not read it yet. I'm going to read it at the weekend. But, but, but the, the sort of comparison is an interesting one because you're, particularly for these younger Indian players, when you do buy them in an auction or you do bring them into an IPL squad, let alone an IPL team, uh, these are life-changing moments. And many of those players are moving from, you know, literally no money to riches beyond their wildest dreams in the space of 24 months or in the space, t- you know, take a Shivam Dubey who's, um, who's, who, who, who we paid quite a lot of money for in the auction. Um, I mean, he hasn't played first-class cricket. Um, he, uh, he's a young player that most, you know, it's basically unknown really in India other than for having attracted a high price at the auction. Um, and that money that we pay him will, will transform not just his life, but his family's life. And that's a huge amount of pressure. That's a huge amount of pressure. So if you don't, what you definitely have to do as a franchise, I think, is think about those aspects as much as you think about the cricketing aspects. Ask yourself if you've got the infrastructure in place to help players through those sort of journey. So when I look at the amount of time we've and the support we've tried to put in place for someone like Yash, who 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 sort of had superstar written on him at the age of eighteen, 
but to help him. Yes, yeah, not to to help him, not just with his cricket, but with his personal development, his life development, etc. Um, you know, we always talk about being fan centric and player centric. Well, th- those are those are easy words, but you've got to, you know, you've got to follow that up with actions. Uh, and to your point about judging character, I, you know, I I think it's a really interesting one, which is, I think we've done it and tried to do it, um, but I wouldn't say it's systematic because uh, unlike assessing strike rates, unlike st- assessing uh, you know player performance, you know the data isn't really there. So you tend to do it, you know, by taking references off coaches or references off players who've played with them. Um, but how you systematise that sort of character analysis um, is, I think, a really interesting sort of body of work. Um, you know, something that, you know, Gareth Southgate, who uh, manages the England football team, it's something I know he, he, he thinks about a lot. Um, and whether it's Jurgen Klopp, you know, who obviously I have a man crush on, but, you know, or any other sort of great kind of leader, I, th- I think you know intuitively that character really matters. Now, you own um, now a franchise in Barbados and also one in Pal. Um I have a, a, a comment here, but Mike Atherton wrote a piece about the, the IPL and the future of franchises and so on in The Times the other day. And one of the readers of that article wrote here, uh, he applauded the book we've written written together, incidentally. Uh, but he also <laughs> says um, that talking about the support of, say, the South African T20 and the teams there, um, he says, you know, excellent support from IPL franchises to help with the main partner, Supersport. But with that comes the risk of losing your identity as the franchises and their staff take over all aspects of the league's day-to-day operations and venues, leaving little room for the future development of local sporting admin or players, or not not so much players, but more the infrastructure. So, is there is there a you know is there a danger? Is there a likelihood of IPL franchises having too much power in these mm. foreign leagues? Um, look, it's a possibility, but I think I think I think you have to you have to look at you have to look at the, 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 the challenge holistically, right? And objective number one, I think, for any international league is to get the best possible players playing. You get the best possible players playing, you attract the most crowds, you attract the most eyeballs, you create the best quality product. Um, and so that, that if, if you agree with that and if that's your focus... There's a, a reality which is the best players are going to be paid the most by and earn the most in the IPL and therefore the IPL franchises are going to have the ability to encourage those players to play for their teams in other leagues. So, um, and you're going to have IPL franchisings seeking to subsidise the participation of those players to build that player franchise connect as we have with, for example, for English fans, someone like a Joss Butler or, um, so, so that, that is a, if you like an economic inevitability of the economic structure of the game and the IPL's dominance in those economics. 
That said, I do think you have a responsibility that if you are going to play in PAL, play in Barbados, that you are doing uh, your bit to develop local cricket and local coaches. And so in season one, most of our coaches, um, I'd have to think from memory, but I think all of our coaching staff were not just South African, but many of them were local to the PAL region. Um, now, where we, where, we, where we will bring overseas coaches, that's to ensure that the style of cricket or the approach to the uh, way we play is consistent across different franchises. Uh, but I like to think that we are developing local coaches. In fact, we took three of the South African coaches to the IPL last year. Um, and at least one of those coaches is going to become part of you know, the main structure in the IPL. So I, I, think, I think those opportunities are evolving. And as it relates to your, you know, your earlier question about academies, we've been very careful to make sure we work with the local associations to build academies in the places that we play. And when you look at the trajectory of someone like an Obed McCoy, um, if we hadn't have been in the Caribbean Premier League, we wouldn't have seen an Obed. We wouldn't have taken an Obed initially as a net bowler to the IPL. And, you know, you may or may not remember two years ago, he was playing in an IPL final in front of 135,000 people. So the, the, there is definitely a two-way aspect to, to this growth. But people don't always like to hear it. But the only way you make things sustainable is by going with the economic reality of what makes things sustainable. And it is the IPL franchises who are going to be spending the most money because they can on the biggest players. And so the other leagues, in my opinion, if they want the best players, should embrace that. And obviously there's been uh, quite a lot of stories, you know, in the last couple of years about IPL franchises buying teams abroad. How much collaboration, uh, integra integration, interaction is there between franchises for the sort of wider good? You know, is there much actual collaboration between IPL franchises or a charter to sort of say that, you know, we want to look after the game in a whole or is each one just left to their own devices? Yeah, I mean, my personal view on this is, you know, not as much as there should be uh, is the sort of quick answer in the sense that, you know, there isn't, there isn't anything formal. Um, clearly, there are many of us that have been in the tournament for 15 years who obviously know each other very well and, um, you know, share, uh, sh you know, share conversations and, and there are sort of informal gatherings. It's something that I know that the, um, the BCCI are keen to foster. Um, I think, I, you know, I think the, the bigger cricket gets, the bigger the IPL gets, the bigger the benefits for everyone. So collaboration, I think, is a good thing. Um, but it's it, the, the truthful answer is it's, it's, it's pretty piecemeal. There are initiatives, particularly charitable initiatives, where the teams do work together. Uh, you know, Neswadia from the Punjab Super Kings has, has pushed a, uh, an initiative across the IPL to allow um, people who wouldn't otherwise be able to go to a game to go to a game, and that's something that all the franchises support. Whenever there's a charitable request from one franchise to another, it's generally supported, but it's pretty ad hoc, Yelza is the truth.
And I mean, you know, following on from that question, then, you know, the cricket calendar, as we all know, is congested. There's talk of the IPL expanding. There's talk of Saudis coming and creating a league or investing in a league or whatever. You know, how's this all going to play out, do you think? Well, you know, you and I talked about this a lot when we, um, you know, when we put a new innings, um, you know, our book together. And I think, I think it is arguably the single most important issue for the administrators of the game to sort of grab hold of is the scheduling. Um, it doesn't sound like a particularly important task to schedule, but it's critical because there are only two assets in the game, the, the fans and the players. And if we don't protect those assets with schedules that make sense, um, particularly the players, um, you're going to force choices that didn't need to be forced. And you're going to force, create injuries that didn't need to happen. And um, we've got, we have got a schedule that's got too many leagues. I think there's an interesting question because the reality is there's the IPL that's sort of massive and then there's... And it has its own sort of space in the calendar. Right, and then there's a few, let's call them sort of larger um, potential leagues and then there are some very minor leagues. And the slight danger is that you either A, commoditize the game with, with and you confuse fans with, you know, too many, too many leagues at too many times. There's also a danger in the minor leagues where... Their only real purpose to exist is, you know, to provide more content for the gaming companies and the gambling companies that can can feed off um, the sports betting that goes alongside these games. Um, and so I think, you know, I do think it's a re- really important question for the ICC and for the administrators of the games to kind of step back and say, actually, how many of these leagues do we want? What is the role of each of these leagues? Uh, are they developmental? Are they to service, um, you know, genuine, you know, to create genuine competition with the best players? Um, but it is just way too too crowded at the moment. And I don't, I don't think that's good for the game holistically. Do you get consulted on this by the powers that be? And have they, have they got any power in the end, the ICC? Uh, yeah, look, I, no, I don't really get consulted and... Um, I think you have got a dynamic, which is what you're alluding to, which is, you know, what's unusual about the game of cricket is just how sort of all-powerful sort of India has become, which, which again, is really a consequence of economics rather than, um, than anything else. Um, but, uh, but I think, to your earlier question, you know, what's needed is collaboration with India because, you know, India are the dominant force in the game. Um, but there has to be collaboration with India and, and the ICC and these other countries to sort of create a path through this. You know, I think I think cricket coming into the Olympics, which again, something else we talked about, you know, in the book, is going to be another, um, you know, another really sort of important moment for the game. The World Cup being played in the US this summer, it's going to be a really interesting um you know, moment for the game. So there's real opportunities if we get it right. Probably bigger opportunities than ever before for the associate nations, um, for the non-test playing nations, to to grow the game, 
for fans who haven't been able to access the game in important parts of the world like America to access the game. So, you know, we, we, we always, I always think in cricket, perhaps it's a British thing, but we always sort of talk about the challenges and the, the issues and the, but there's so many opportunities that are presented right now. Um, you know, the Middle East taking an interest in the game. There's so many opportunities and so many positives. I just, like, I, I wish we could be a bit more optimistic sometimes and go, um, actually, these are good problems. I mean, the problems I deal with day to day, you know, in, in our business lives, you know, you, you, I always say you've got some good problems and some bad problems. The, the, the biggest problem cricket's got right now is there's almost too much opportunity uh, or too many opportunities and we've just got to be really thoughtful about how we make some choices. I mean, the, the, what's hard about life and business and, 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 and decision-making is what not to do as much as it is what to do. Um, and that's what we've got to figure out with cricket. And test cricket obviously plays a part of that. And, you know... I know you love Test cricket. I know you do. I've sat with you and watched Test cricket, and you absorb it. You you enjoy it. There's there's a sort of I suppose a way of growing Test cricket. It, it, it's it's a it's a good product at the moment, isn't it? How do we it's, how do we grow it and 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 stop in a way stop the people from having that pessimistic attitude towards it? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure I've got all the answers, but but you know this England team and this England leadership under McCullum and Stokes have have um, have perhaps at least demonstrated part of the answer. Um, I mean, I can't remember a period, you know, that's sort of been better than the last two years for, you know, not just the brilliant series that we're in the middle of right now, but, you know, we've had so many fantastic sort of um, test series uh, over the last couple of years. So, so, so someone's getting something right. I mean, y- you and I have argued for years that, you know, we've got to be more open to the day-night, um, you know, op- opportunities that present themselves. We've also both argued that statistically, when you look at the number of test matches that finish within four days, you know, there's a question as to whether um, whether that's one way of easing the schedule a bit, which is just accepting it. Last time I looked at it, I think it was 74% of all matches finish within four days. I don't know what that up-to-date statistic is, but it's but it's definitely a lot. Um, I think the uh, the fact that the innovations in T Twenty have made their way into uh, into Test cricket, the quality of the fielding, the quality of the shot making. So, look, I as you as you prefaced at the start of your question, you know, no one wants Test cricket to survive more than me, um, and I think it I think it has a place, but you've got to keep evolving things if they're going to survive. And talking of evolution. Obviously, uh, the hundred in England, and uh, the talk of now the ECB offering up franchises for sale. Forty nine percent can be owned by private investors. So, how do you look at that? I'm clearly an advocate for <laughs> private investment in 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 cricket. Um, I'm an advocate for private investment in these franchise tournaments. Um, I think there's an awful lot that the ECB should be congratulated on. With regard to the hundred, particularly, I think the opening the game to new audiences, what it's done for women's cricket uh, in the country is uh, is extraordinary. But there's a lot more potential, and um, there's a lot more potential uh, in lots of different areas. Whether it's the 
quality of players uh, that are that, that are representing the sides, whether it's the uh, the marketing uh, of the game even more, whether it's so so I think there's there's tons of potential, and like any investor that's committed to the game, you know, we'll be having a very very hard look at it, but you know the only thing I always sort of say is you know we will be economically rational about those investment decisions we've looked at lots of leagues around the world not just the two that we've chosen to invest in but we've looked at the middle east we've looked at uh, the us and and ultimately as a franchise we've always said we'll be economically rational about about those decisions even though obviously as someone that lives here uh, you know, you'd love to see a um, you know a rural franchise of some sort and the IPL's coming round again, isn't it? Straight after the back of the, uh, the fifth test, yeah. uh, you're up and running. How important is it, as a final question, how important is it to you to win the IPL? Or is it just enough to be part of something fantastic? We do everything we can to, to give ourselves the best possible chance of winning. I mean, if you look at, if you look at our squad, if you look at, the investments we make year round if you look at the investments we make with our uh, preparation of the players if you look at the investments we make in our coaching staff i mean i i don't it's definitely not for 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 lack of effort but I, equally i think you have to be realistic which is you know, as my business partner charles always talks about you know kind of focus on the inputs and let the outputs take care of themselves. I don't think you can go into a tournament saying, you know, we are going to win or we will judge our success purely um, by whether we win or not because it's 10 fantastic teams. The margins, as you well know, between the the teams and the margins in the games um, are ridiculously fine. Um, and it's two balls here or, uh, you know, one, four or six Five here. So, yeah. you know, I think... I think I think what we're tough on ourselves about is making sure at the end of every season we look back and say, of all the things that we could control, did we do the best possible job that we could? Um, and if we didn't, we have to get better. That's Manoj Badali, lead owner of the Rajasthan Royals. A th- few things to pick up uh, from that, Yoz. Very cautious about whether he's going to invest or thinking of investing in the English game is a bit of a theme at the moment, isn't it? Are some of the, is in some Indian money going to go into the English game? I think it will, undoubtedly. I mean, they'll all have a look at it and they'll evaluate it and see what the opportunities are. In the end, it'll be about the numbers. It'll be about the projections that the ECB suggest, the potential you know, earnings and revenue that they can, can create. But I think there is potential uh, earnings. I mean, I'm looking at the whole fabric of county cricket myself actually and how counties themselves can monetize more effectively and taking the hundred you know not 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 that that's my area because that's owned by the ecb but there's no doubt the hundred has a lot of potential and the ipl owners and and franchisee uh, investors will see i think a lot of opportunity but they will look at the hard numbers as well before they make a decision and in a way they don't want to sound too keen because as soon as you do, the price goes up. So they have to be quite canny about how they manipulate their position before they put in a bid. And, and let's just be clear on this. We are talking about investing in the 100. We're not talking about in county cricket or blast teams or anything like that. 
Yes, exactly. I mean, actually, there are three counties now that are privately owned, aren't there? Hampshire, uh, that was originally started by Rod Bransgrove. Northamptonshire are owned by a bunch of investors, mostly members, actually. And, of course, Yorkshire now, who've handed over the reins and the the control to, to Colin Graves. Yeah, it would be possible to buy a county, actually. And one or two others have sort of entertained the idea. But at the moment, their balance sheets are not looking in a good state in most cases. So I don't think many investors would be that interested. Mm. Just let's move on to coaching, uh, finally. Manoj there was you know, talking about a different type of coaching. You, you actually had a plan, didn't you, a, a while back to sort of reform the, the, the coaching certificate structure if you like well the royals have been quite uh, pioneers in this sense because you know they were the first to use analytics proper data analytics to assess the players they wanted to buy in the draft and to get matchups on the field you know to work out who was more effective against which particular batsman they've taken that to pretty uh, extensive levels now by using Harvard graduates and people who've come out of the the money ball type stable in baseball to evaluate the data and pick up on on players that would be more valuable than perhaps uh, uh, was generally thought Uh, but what they've also done is looked at coaching methods and Zubin Baracha, who we've mentioned a few times on this podcast, has had a, a big influence on all the Royals players that have come through, notably uh, Yashasvi Jaisval, who we mentioned there in the interview, uh, really sort of found him at 1718 and really kind of helped him to, to, to fine-tune his game and works with him a lot, has also worked with Drew Jarrell, the, 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 the emerging wicketkeeper for, for India, and some young players for England as well, young English players. And it's the coaching strategies they use kind of almost trying to look at the game in a totally different way from the conventional idea. People still talk about the MCC coaching manual, don't they? Well, the MCC coaching manual is probably 40 years out of date. I think coaching has moved on. The ECB and their badges and so on are more modern and more uh, taking into uh, factoring in the modern game. But still, there are other ways of playing the game and other ways of training the game, which the Royals were looking at as a way of sort of bringing in new coaching badges and new coaching strategies that could be wheeled out across the world. And embrace the different versions of the game that players are now playing and I think there still is the potential to do that. How far did you get with that? What, what were you actually looking to do though more specifically? Well, I suppose in a way um, change the, the levels of coaching and the rewards and the recognition of coaches uh, by, by changing the curriculum slightly and, and, and emphasising perhaps shorter formats and the skills required and how to acquire those skills, uh, and then giving coaches sort of recognition and representation and qualifications that then they can use going around the world. Because you, you think, really, that the coaching badges used by ECB and other uh, cricket boards are, are a little bit outdated. But nothing came of it? Well, it, it's still a work in progress, is all, is all I can say, really, about that. They've... Um, it's not an easy thing to administer and it's still something that they're looking at. Um, but, you know, the game evolves so quickly, it's not easy to keep pace with it. So are we talking about here, uh, you know, talk about I don't know, how to play a, a defensive stroke, but actually are we talking about coaching the reverse sweep or well, it, coaching it, it, the larrup uh, over mid-wicket? And, and some, it's sometimes, some of that, it's also 
looking at the modern game and, and copying the way players approach different scenarios. I, I think a lot, of, uh, a lot of practice now in professional game is using the scenario idea uh, setting a, a play. It's the, in a way, it's a slight spin-off of the old thing we used to do. We go in the nets and go right, you know, have a practice for ten minutes, fifteen minutes, have a bat, and then uh, we'll give you, we'll set you twelve to win off the last ten mm. balls or something. And obviously, we used to do that. Well, now it's become a bit more uh, sophisticated with uh, the way of you know setting a bowling machine up and you know having cones out there and evaluating shots in in more specific ways or perhaps you know putting in a match situation sometimes you even see crowd noises being brought in to try and uh, try and replicate a pressure situation so players can practice what it's like taking a high catch under pressure in the last over of a game or something so there's lots of sort of scenario ideas which can be brought into a, a modern coaching framework plus also the old idea that you need to get your foot to the pitch you know, is completely being banished by a lot of modern players who say it's not about the foot, it's about the head. You know, it's about which direction the head is going in and the weight of the head, which then directs the rest of the body. And all the kind of new shots, you know, they talk about things like step hits and things like that now, don't they? So there's a lot of new jargon to, to get acquainted with and a lot of new drills that can help players uh, adapt to the modern game. And you're so you're saying that, and then, but there must be coaches who've done their level four ECB level four who can adapt to all that and, and are adapting to it and have adapted to it, adapted to it. Surely, yeah, no, of course there are, uh, and and there's a lot of very good coaches coming out of England. Uh, it was more of, I suppose, you know, going down a level or two really, and sort of educating the next layer of people, uh, sort of moving it on from the traditional methods. Okay, enough of that, and enough. Uh, for this week. Next Thursday, we'll be back with our review of the first day, weather permitting, of the final test match. We might have to chip the ice off uh, various people uh, to get that game underway in, in Durham, Charlotte. The series is gone, but the World Test Championship is is still alive, so they're battling for that. And as Ben Stokes said, whenever, every time you pull on an England jersey, uh, it means something. So they'll be going at it, hammer and tongs in that final test match up in the Himalayas and we'll be back after play to bring you our review of the first day. Thanks very much for listening and goodbye for now. Podcast Network.